0: Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popovich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy on News Talk 770.
1: Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, and filling in for Dave Popovich is Rob Gary. Rob is an investment advisor. Rob, I'm excited that you're here. Thank you for joining us. Good to be here. We've got a great show today. We've got a really good show because we want to talk about, of course, what's on everybody's mind. Two big topics: what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, and what the impact will be. Mm-hmm. And then, what about this big number that just came in this week, which was inflation, and how's it going to impact? Thirty-year high. Um, everybody's got their their ears open to it, and well, what's the
0: real issue? Yeah, we're all affected. You know, we and want that's. To know.
1: That's going to be a very interesting show, and I'm glad that you're here because I want to talk to you about a topic that's getting closer and closer to what I call the deadline, which is tax filing deadline. We've got uh, probably six weeks away, um, and when it comes to filing taxes, we've been getting a lot of calls and emails about tax receipts, and let me let me paint the picture for you, Rob. Uh, we had one individual uh, call us up and say, I'm going on to my CRA website. I'm downloading all my tax receipts, and oh my God, Faisal, there's 150 different tax (laughs) receipts I'm downloading here. This is crazy. And I asked him, do you have all your tax receipts? And he's like, I have no idea. Right. So the question is, what should people do as we enter into this tax season where we all want to file our taxes sooner to get our money sooner, our refund? So there's the incentive. I get that. Yeah. Right? So what but we know that maybe we don't have all the tax receipts. Or we don't even know if we, we where to get all our tax receipts and stuff like that. And they come in dribs and drabs in the mail or online, they're not coming all at one shot. So what what should what should people do when they're when they're getting ready to prepare for tax returns? Uh,
0: well I mean the first step I would say was talk to your financial team, right? And and have an indication on do we have more stuff coming in? What are the deadlines for some of these companies to actually file, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what we look at. yeah. and and some of them have a deadline of 90 days past right January 1st to file on on trust income. And so we're still waiting on some of these. Yeah, so, there, so you
1: might be waiting for some tax receipts that do not have to be completed until the end of March, which means you won't get them in the mail at least till the first week of April. You won't that's correct.
0: That's correct. right?
1: My dad likes to file really early. He called me up on a Sunday to talk about taxes. That was great. Last week, he calls me up and he goes, Faisal, I want to file my taxes. Do I have all my tax receipts? And I'm like, no. He's like, why not? I'm like, well, they, they have until March <laughs> 31st to get it done. What? No one told me that. Every year. <laughs> Every year, Dad, March 31st, trust uh, tax receipts do not have to be uh, created until then. So it's 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 a frustration and then people either file and then go, "Oh, I got some more tax receipts in the mail," or some people file and go, "I don't know if I got all my tax receipts." Right. So what sh- what's the f- so they talk to their financial team is step 1, what's step 2?
0: Get them to your accountant, but make sure you have everything included. Right? And and we try and build out a, a comprehensive checklist for client to say, "These are the things that we're looking for." These are the things that you can use to go against your tax bill, including fees. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of things that you can use to to enhance your tax return.
1: So so, so many years ago, we started up the, a little program for our clients called the Tax Package. Our clients would reach out to us and say, okay, I'm ready mm-hmm. to receive my tax package. Um, our team would basically consolidate all the tax receipts in one, Uh, one package, and we would email it or mail it out uh, to the accountant, to the individual client, so they know that we've looked at everything and we've put it all together. But there are other tax receipts beyond your financial uh, advisor or the financial institution that you deal with. There are other financial institutions, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, There's T4 slips that you get from either working or Canadian pension plan or an RSP withdrawal or whatever it may be. And so you're getting all these different receipts. One thing I I strongly recommend after you've spoken to your accountant is look at last year's taxes. Take a look at your last year tax
0: return. Great point.
1: And take a look at what you had as tax receipts. And do you have the same tax receipts this year? Most Canadians will have the same tax receipt. If you had a T4... Uh, income, you're probably going to have a T4 income this year. If you're going to have uh, investment income tax receipts, you're probably going to have the same type of investment income tax. And if there's something missing, ask, where yeah. is it?
0: And I've seen a lot, you know, I would say now going forward, are using the do it yourself programs, right? Yeah. And there's tons out there. Um, and they're dynamic, right? Because they, they'll ask, hey, you inputted this last year are you doing that again? So yeah. they do have some of those fail-safes, yep. but they also have some issues, I would say, on filing early as well. Because if you don't, they, they don't know if you're you're still waiting. Yeah, The program does not know. Neither does CRA. Right?
1: CRA does not know that you're going to get a tax receipt coming to be printed by the end of March if it's not the end of March. It's truly put on the individual. Right. So take a step back, get the proper advice, get the understanding, and then... Once you've done your tax return, once you've filed, you might get a re- refund. You might have to pay. Once that's all figured out, I think the best opportunity right there is to sit down with your tax professional and your and your retirement transition specialist, and go through what's the tax plan for 2022. You got it. There's the opportunity. And so, Rob, you know when you look at all the different pieces that happen in a retirement plan, there's the I need income. Mm-hmm. I need growth. I need to make sure that the my in, in the event of a health issue I've got money set aside for that. Um, there's taxes. Everything there's there there's taxes and there's a fear that taxes is going up, are going to go up and mm-hmm. we're in that we're in that biased viewpoint that taxes are going to go up. And so you look at all those issues that come up and then when you when you've you've leave the all, you've left this world, you've left all this money behind, who does it go to? <laughs> how do they receive it? And what's the tax implication of them receiving all this money? It comes again that proper planning is in the place, but there needs to be a strategy, an approach to bulletproof that retirement. And we've got a solution for that problem. And we're going to talk about, we do this every single month. Why don't you tell our our
0: audience when the next seminar is? I don't think any of us want to pay more taxes than we have to, correct? So yes, join us Tuesday, March 29th, 7 p.m. live online. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. You know, coming up after the
1: break, there's a whole bunch of issues happening within this war with Russia and Ukraine. One of it is, of course, the humanitarian issues within Ukraine. Rob, we have um, a lot of guests that come on this show with different perspectives of major events that happen. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing this for a very long time, over 12 years. But there's one reoccurring guest that gives us more of a geopolitical viewpoint. He is not only a geopolitical analyst, but he's got a large following of individuals who, who read his stuff all the time. Absolutely. And that's, that's, and that's something that we have to kind of like mention because we've brought him on the show specifically for key parts about the Russian war, uh, and how it's going to impact the finance system, the financial system in Russia, and then what's the impact to Canada from a geopolitical uh, perspective. And let's, let's bring him on the show. His name is Peter Zine He's a geopolitical analyst. Uh, Peter, welcome to the show. Good to be back. All right, let's go with this overview. Uh, you've got two different uh, pieces that I have. I'm holding it up for those who are going to see us on video, but it's the one is called Demographics and the Ukraine War. And the other one, is called The End of Russian Finance. I'd like to start with the demographics and the Ukraine war. Um, Give us the background about this, and and how do we get to this point? Because I think your your article and your write-up has a, a great piece to kind of talk about that.
2: Sure. So, demographics are the study of population structures, and you would normally expect to have more children than teenagers, than 20-somethings, than 30-somethings, than 40-somethings. It tends to be a pyramid just because of mortality. But between industrialization and urbanization, most of the world has turned into a chimney or even be inverted so that you've got more people who are in their 40s than children. Russia is a special case even within that because they had the pogroms they had the famines they had the world wars they had Brezhnev and Khrushchev who uh, shoved everyone into tiny efficiency apartments and so Russia has the second fastest aging society in the world and in most parts of the country there are more people in their 60s than there are children Uh, about 1985 the Russian educational system collapsed And so the youngest people who have kind of the full suite of technical training, who know how to do real work, whether it's accounting or engineering, you know, they're in their late 50s now. So Russia is facing a chronic uh, worker quality issue. It's facing chronic labor shortages, it's seeing a collapse in institutions including the army, and even within the Kremlin, we are now down to such a small cadre of people that every time that somebody uh, accidentally duct tapes themselves to a long chair and jumps into a pool, uh, it's it's a national crisis. Uh, There is not a lot left to keep this system going, and we're seeing some aspects of that organizational breakdown in the Ukraine war right now.
1: So let's take that to the Ukraine side. Is that an area where it would help if they took over Ukraine?
2: Uh, Well, technically, if you could absorb Ukraine without a fight, And integrate Ukrainians, it would give them another—I mean, 45 million people overall, but another 10 million young people—that wouldn't hurt. Uh, That's not what's happening, though. Um, As soon as the Russians realized on like day four of the war that this was not going to be a cakewalk, they started dusting off the strategies that they had used in the Chechen war in Grozny and in the Syrian civil war in Aleppo, Uh, and they're going with a complete civilian obliteration effort now, uh, leveling every individual population center that they come across. Uh, obviously, you're seeing this in places like Mirapol and Krakow and Kiev, uh, but those are the big cities, so that's where we're seeing the most news. But any area that they have taken over, they have already just completely razed any of the small towns and villages that they've come across. So this, this is the war now is designed to generate as many possible refugees as possible because refugees leave and then reduce everything else to rubble. And anyone who's left behind is a guerrilla fighter and you can shoot them on site.
0: I think That's great on what's happening now. And I think that a lot of our listeners are starting to wonder, what what are we seeing as the most likely outcome from this point going forward?
2: Oh, the Russians are definitely going to win the war. The question is how many Ukrainians die between now and then and how long it takes. Mm. Uh, The big concern in the Western world now is that we have been disabused of any notions that the Russian military is a peer force to NATO. And we now know that if American forces come head to head with Russian forces, that the Russian force would be obliterated. Uh, That sounds like good news from a defense point of view, but it's actually really bad from a strategic point of view. Because if we do have a direct NATO-Russia fight, and the Russian forces are just embarrassingly wiped out, uh, the Russian government will have a simple choice to make. Complete strategic humiliating withdrawal, or up the ante to nukes. So NATO policy now is to shove as many weapon systems as we possibly can into the Ukrainian space to keep the Ukrainians going as long and as hard as possible, make this war as bloody as possible for the Russians, and turn the entire country of Ukraine into an imperial kill zone so that this is the last war that Russia can fight and it can never move beyond Ukraine. That's now the strategy on both sides is to devastate this area as much as we can.
1: So the the theories that are out there, Peter, one of them that we've looked at is um, Kiev gets taken over by the Russians. The, the negotiations start from there where uh, Ukraine agrees not to join NATO and they basically stop from any more uh, uh, growth into the country. Uh, they mean the Russians and they kind of just have this kind of standstill for the rest of their lives. But as long as um yeah. ukraine that you don't see that happening from from no that's a, from not UCD that's out? not what
2: the russians are after here uh the russians if when it became clear that ukraine was not just going to be handed to them uh what the russians are up to is they're trying to get to the gateway territories that allow physical access for other countries to invade them so the russians have been invaded like 50 times through their history and it's always been through one of nine gateway territories uh the ones that are relevant to this conversation are the Bessarabian Gap, which goes into Romania, the Polish Gap, which obviously goes into Poland, and the Baltic Sea Coast, which includes the uh, uh, the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Ukraine is nothing more to the Russians than on the way to those gateways that they need to plug. So this is not... A one-stop-shop war this is simply uh, kind of a middle of the ground because they've already plugged some in the Caucasus, they've already plugged one in Kazakhstan they now have to move forward to plug these three on their western edge uh, and they're not going to stop until they get there the question is whether or not they can get there uh, and that's one of the reasons why NATO is so focused now on keeping the war in Ukraine so we don't have a direct NATO Russia clash
0: let me turn it a little bit to the humanitarian side of this because we're seeing on the media a lot of the refugees. What's your what's your thought on um, you know what's ha- what happens to those refugees at this point?
2: Well, we've, this is a country of 45 million people, and probably within 48 hours, the number of refugees that have fled will hit 3 million, which is already the single fastest, largest population movement in, in human history. Uh, within three months, that number will probably hit 10 million. And the populations that are fleeing are heavily concentrated in women under 40 and children. So from a completely moral, neutral economic point of view, if you're a country in Europe and you've got a terminal demography and your birth rate has been low for decades, this is a shot in the arm. Because here is a population coming in that knows they're going to need to start over. Most of them know that they can't go back because the Russians are destroying everything. And they need to start from scratch. But they're also probably the best educated refugee community we have ever seen. And so, assuming a country can integrate them, looking at you, Canada, uh, the ability to round out your demographic profile and have workers and consumers in the future, long-term investment here, of course, uh, is, 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 pre- is a pretty smart move. Uh, I would anticipate since there's a lot of sympathy across the West, that most countries are going to put together some sort of refugee visa program for these people. Uh, But just to give you an idea of the scale, you remember back uh, a few years ago when the Syrian refugees came into Germany and over the course of a year and a half, it like just upended German and European politics. Poland in the last three weeks has already accepted more refugees from Ukraine than the entirety of the Syrian flow to all of the European Union for a year and a half. Just the scale of this is utterly unprecedented.
1: You, Peter, you did mention, I mean, you have about 30 seconds or so before we have to go to commercial break, but you did mention uh, a hint to Canadians. One thing that we did during this pandemic was actually see a, a larger amount of immigration come into this country. Um, that's one of the strategies that we've been hearing from economists, that it could really help uh, with growth in this country because we have a low birth rate as well. Do you think there should be a more aggressive viewpoint from the federal government in Canada to say those from Ukraine, refugees, open our doors, let's bring them all in as much as we can to help the not only them, but also the Canadian economy and society as well?
2: I'd argue the Canadian government's been doing that for about 30 years. Uh, Because the birth rate has been so low in Canada for so long, you're kind of on an immigration treadmill. And as long as you keep the doors open and people keep coming in, you put off the day where you face a kind of a demographic collapse situation like we're seeing in Japan and China and Russia uh, and a lot of Europe. So despite the fact that uh, the average age in Canada is so high, And there are so few children you keep bringing in people in their 20s and 30s as long as that continues uh, the financial calamities that a lot of the world is facing will pass you by so yeah i totally think that and canada is the only country culturally that has been able to pull this off to this scale so far Uh, as long as you keep doing it you'll be in good shape
1: i'm really interested in this uh, uh peter uh tell us more about what you're seeing And how this whole thing got, how you put this basically on paper for the world to see when you talk about the end of Russian finance.
2: The the Russian system has now under greater sanction than all other countries in human history, all sanctions combined. Just the degree to this, and and there's more coming. Uh, I mean, we haven't even started to sanction the energy sector in a very serious way. That's coming. the, the most impressive and unexpected step was the full sanctioning of the Russian Central Bank. So the, the Central Bank now is barred from engaging in any sort of transfer of any funds in Swiss francs, Korean won, Japanese yen, European euros, Canadian dollars, American dollars, Australian dollars, and I'm sure I left out a few big ones in there. Uh, so they went from having over a half a billion dollars in reserves uh, to nothing almost overnight the only currencies that the, the russian system can still tap are the ones that were in the country which are obviously useless for international transactions and what is in the country is split between gold uh, and um, chinese yuan which is not, not even the chinese one so we're in this weird situation now that if the Chi- if the russians want to buy stuff on the international market they have to send a plane full of gold to pay for it Now, that can be done. The Iranians have done that, but it's never happened on this sort of scale. I mean, this is the 11th or 12th largest economy in the world based on who's doing the math. And to have a a gold payment system, it's like going back to the 1700s. Uh, So in this sort of environment, even if the Russians thought it was okay, wanted to pay their Western creditors, they no longer have the capacity. So we're going to be looking at a series of rolling uh, defaults. I'd actually argue they're already in technical default because they've already said that they're only going to pay uh, on their bonds in rubles. And April 15 is kind of the magical date when we're past the 30-day uh, grace period and they go into full default. Uh, and I see every single Russian government-linked bond at every single level, municipal, provincial, state, state-owned company, all of them are going to zero.
1: So what, what happens if that was to occur? Like, what, it, From our perspective, being Canadian, being American, it's, yeah, okay, that's, that's happening over there. What's the impact if a country like this goes through a complete collapse financially?
2: Well, let me give you a midterm and a long term. So, on the midterm, uh, every Russian company, especially the bigger ones that are responsible for resource production, are heavily uh, dependent upon bonds in order to get the investment and to maintain production. So we're looking at the broad-scale collapse of the Russian extraction sector. And so that means that anything the Russians do export, even without new sanctions, we are looking at a collapse in their productive capacity. So that's platinum. That's palladium. That's coal. That's timber. That's oil. That's natural gas. That's aluminum. All of this stuff is looking at chronic problems the midterm Uh, a little bit longer term we know from the experience of the asian financial crisis that finance is interconnected uh, in in ways that we can't predict so in 1997 when a bunch of thai property developers and currency players uh realized that they had overbid they started pulling their money out of the system and getting it out of thailand and within six months we had similar runs in places like Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, It ultimately went to Korea and Russia and Brazil. Uh, So when you look at emerging market uh, funds, Russia is a component in all of them And now we're looking at breakdowns in russian oil exports which is going to generate price pressures in most developing markets so we get a second order effect that is going to pollute a lot of these indexes anyway so until the financial sector finds a way to hive these developing markets into separate buckets so you know Brazil's a very different economy from Russia's, a very different economy from Malaysia. Until we can find a way to split that uh, based on actual risk and economic performance and above all geopolitical impacts, uh, we're looking at the entire financial sector just going into tailspin after tailspin because we now have first and second order problems wound into most of our investment products. And there is no way to hive that out except for just liquidating anything in emerging markets overall so we first get an emergency emerging market financial crash and then we have to figure out how to rebuild we will not do that in a year
0: i i we're all past the pumps in the morning right and locally in calgary (laughs) we're obviously tied to the energy sector specifically uh can you kind of give us your viewpoint on how this would affect uh, the global energy sector and how it affect uh, calgary in general too
2: Sure. So it's it's good, and then it's I'm sorry. It's bad, and then it's good, and then it's bad again. Is the short answer. Uh, (laughs) The the Russian system exports about two thirds of its output to the West, primarily to the Black and the Baltic Sea. Uh, Right now, loadings are complicated on the Black Sea because insurance companies are not allowing ships to go in. So anyone who is going is going to have some sort of sovereign indemnification. Uh, In addition, uh, ship captains, especially from Western countries, are refusing to go. And dock workers in the West are refusing to unload Russian cargoes. Uh, In addition, both the Black and the Baltic Sea ports for the Russians are very shallow. They they can't take super tankers, So we're looking right now at maybe a three million barrel per day uh, block in the Russian system where they just can't get it out. And the longer that holds, the more they fill up their storage, the more the pressure builds up all the way back to the wellhead. Once that happens, they just have to shut in production. And in Russia, because the pipes are so long, because the, the weather is so harsh, and because the operating conditions in Siberia are so difficult, once that happens, once it's shut in, it's shut in for at least a decade. So we're looking at somewhere between 4 and 5 million barrels a day of Russian crude that's likely to fall off the market. And that's, that's the largest disruption ever. I mean, that's more than when Venezuela and Iraq went offline at the same time in 2004. Or 2003. 2003. Uh, and it's not coming back. You know Iraq eventually came back this isn't coming back so in the short term you are looking at massive increases in energy prices over the course of the summer uh, I would be shocked if we stay below 170 now in that environment Albertan crude is wildly competitive but it won't last Because in the United States, we have a populist president. Well, actually, he's our third in a row populist president. And a quirk in American energy law is that the president has the authority to, by executive decree, end oil exports from the United States. And if that happens, we're looking at a ceiling of American oil prices, about 70, whereas the rest of the world then has to wrestle with Russian and American exports going offline at the same time. And I think $200 is a good number to to factor in. So we get a North American energy price and we get a global energy price. And this is kind of the sequestered energy trading system we had before World War II. We're going back to that. For Alberta, that's a bit of a disaster. Because it means that all of your infrastructure is terminated into a super-saturated market, and $70 is probably as good as it's going to get. So until and unless Alberta is able to get additional pipelines uh, going somewhere else, uh, this is just the price environment that you're going to have to suck up with for the foreseeable future. Well,
1: Well, that sounded great. (laughs) Wow, okay. So, so that, again, now this is this is the problem that we've been talking about because our government from a federal perspective does not want more pipelines coming out of Alberta. So there is a problem with that, even well, though e- even um, if there's opportunity.
2: Even if the previous government of Harper were in charge and even if Keystone had happened, remember what happens to the crude from playthings like Keystone. It doesn't go on the international market. It goes to refineries in Texas and the Texans would refine it. And then the refined product would go somewhere else. So in an environment where the Americans are blocking oil exports, the president does not have the authority to block oil product exports. That would require an act of Congress. That's unlikely. So Canada would still be selling into that super saturated market, and it would be the Texas refiners who have the ability to play arbitrage in the international system. So there's really no Peter, way we got that Canada got about 30 could win seconds here. left.
1: Oh. Yeah, sorry Peter, we got about 30 seconds left before we have to go. Um, if you were in charge of Canada what you've outlined going on right now, what would you do? Uh,
2: Russia is also the world's largest exporter of potash and of fertilizers in general. That is a space where they're in direct competition with Canada. So we're looking at a global fertilizer shortage, and there's no country that will benefit more from that than Canada because all of a sudden you have dominant market share. You can't produce enough to replace Russia, which means prices will skyrocket both for the inputs for fertilizer for the fertilizer itself and for the crops on the back end specifically wheat wheat has been a very unsexy product for the last 70 years and it's about to get really exciting and no country will benefit more than that than canada
1: there you go and so when you look at these types of opportunities risks the concerns that come out there, you know, a good write-up and a good understanding of this is awesome. And I, I really appreciate, Peter, for you uh, uh, continually coming on our show and, and educating our audience on a regular basis. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, appreciate it, Peter.
2: As long as the world keeps breaking down, I'll keep talking about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've been joined by Peter Zine, geopolitical analyst and uh, reoccurring guest. Rob, we talked about... Uh, before the break of inflation being a concern to people's pocketbooks. I wanna share with you a recent survey that was done by Ledger talking about how more and more Canadians, about about 80% of Canadians that were, uh, were surveyed are going to look for different ways to shop when it comes to groceries. Mm. They're going to uh, try to have their food last longer for them. They're gonna reduce the amount that they're uh, spending at restaurants. They even talked about buying electric vehicles in this survey because uh because the price of gasoline is too high and so let's talk about the real impact Is this going to be a long-term issue or a short-term issue and there's no one better than we can have on this one but benjamin tall deputy chief economist of cibc world markets benny welcome to the show a pleasure thank you so let's kick it off right there with inflation and then the the survey that we just uh, received from ledger about people's behavior changes is this going to be a long-term impact? Do you see this actually going for years in the future where people are going to be impacted in their pocketbook?
3: The short answer is no. I don't think so because, quite frankly, the Bank of Canada and the Fed will not let it happen. The issue is not inflation at the end of the day. The issue is what will be the cost of bringing inflation back to where it belongs, which is 2%. You know, over the, the past 40 years, the Bank of Canada, the Fed, the ECB in Europe They build a reputation as inflation fighters. They are not going to toss it away. So it's not about inflation. It's not back to the 70s. It's basically what it will take to bring it back in terms of higher interest rates. I think that's where the focus should be. Now, uh, we know that there are many sources to this inflation uh, uh, trajectory that we are seeing now. One of them is the supply chain story. I believe about 60-70% of inflation that we are seeing now is supply chain. And as we discussed in previous conversation, uh, this supply chain is really a demand shock because people are shopping for goods, not services, due to the pandemic. You remove COVID out of the equation and then this supply shock will disappear. This is something that we have to understand. It's all about COVID and COVID eventually, eventually will slow down, let's hope and let's pray. If that's the case, you remove COVID from the equation about 70% of the inflation that you're seeing now will disappear. Then you have the additional aspect, which is the war and all kinds of other things that are more sustainable. Another factor that will stay with us is rent. Rent will remain elevated because house prices went up to the sky rent didn't. So they will catch up. So that's something that will happen. And of course, wages because the labor market is very, very tight that will stay with us. And that's why you have to raise interest rates. So the key issue, is how quickly you will have to raise interest rates in order to bring inflation back to where it belongs. So let's answer that question, how quickly will interest rates
1: rise? And whenever we hear that, the issue of recession comes up, what are your thoughts on those two pieces? How quickly will the the Bank of Canada and the the Fed Reserve raise interest rates and will that push us into a recession?
3: Yes, I think that um, when I see the Bank of Canada and I see them very often, unfortunately, I, I can tell you that I tell them, go slowly go slowly when i say slowly i mean four times a year not seven eight times a year and now the market is pricing in the fed moving seven times the bank of canada six seven times every economic recession every housing market crash was helped if not caused by a monetary policy error and the probability of this error is getting larger and larger quite frankly because uh, they're all human over there in the bank of canada and the fed and when inflation is there you have to fight it now The Bank of Canada can raise interest rates to the sky. That will not impact energy prices due to COVID and due to Putin and due to the war in Europe. Nothing to do with that. The supply chain issue that we are facing has nothing to do with interest rates. So the Bank of Canada, the Fed are very limited in fighting 70% of this inflation. You have to allow COVID to go down in order to ease those inflationary pressure. Yes, you can impact wages. You can impact rent. By raising interest rates and that's the right thing to do but if you overshoot and raise too quickly you raise the probability of a recession in 2023 and i've been talking about it for a year now that this probability is getting higher and higher and higher and that's something that worries me
0: Hmm. let's kind of switch gears and turn to the opportunities and and what's happening here locally because what we're seeing is on the supply side on a housing right we're seeing a shortage (laughs) or lack of supply or lack of supply (laughs) right Um, and a migration potentially to Alberta. So how is it affecting us here on an inflationary basis?
3: Yes, I think that uh, Alberta will lead Canada in terms of economic growth in 2022 Mm. and 2023. Mm. Unfortunately, from a relatively low base, but we'll take it. So Alberta will lead the country in terms of economic growth. Makes sense because of oil prices. Uh, You know, the wars is over. The province is waking up. Some adjustment to the economic engine of um, the province, so immigration coming back, and that's something that is positive. So I'm very positive on Alberta. I think that the worst is over when it comes to economic activity. Clearly, higher oil prices will remain with us. Maybe they will not be as high, maybe they will not go down, but clearly, Russian oil is not going to be with us anytime soon. That will put this premium on oil prices that will benefit. The West, and especially Alberta. So I'm very bullish on Alberta real estate. is no exception here because uh, clearly, relatively speaking, compared to other provinces, Alberta is still relatively cheap. Mm-hmm. So attracting some new immigrants mm-hmm. and demand is there, supply definitely not there, and that's something that will lead to better return in the real estate market.
1: Benjamin, we had we had a previous guest on the show talk about the opportunity for Canada. In, in regards to this war. And one part they mentioned was potash and fertilizer. There's a huge opportunity for Canada in this uh, if there is a, clo- a closure of that market because of the Russia-Ukraine. W- what are your thoughts of opportunities economically that we are lost because of the war, but could be recaptured or captured itself from Canada?
3: Absolutely. Canada is competing with Russia on many of those markets and we are in a position to actually compensate for some of the shortage of uh, goods uh, that will be coming from that, especially in agriculture, of course. Potash, you mentioned, um, you know, wheat, uh, corn. We definitely can increase our capacity there. We need labor. We need some regulations, but we can do that. And that's something that will benefit Canada. So I definitely think that uh, we can compete also when it comes to some uh, metals like nickel and zinc we definitely can compete in this environment as well. So we have to remember one thing. We are back in a cold war and in a cold war you have to choose a side. And I think that uh, Canada we know where we are. If you are China that's the big thing that we have to look at. But one thing is for sure. We are seeing a process of deglobalization that was accelerated during Trump during COVID and now becoming much more significant. That will mean that our reliance on the U.S. will rise, not fall. And therefore, if I'm Justin Trudeau, I'm basically sending all my lobby groups to Washington to make sure that when Biden talks about buy America, he's talking really about buy Not America, because our reliance on the U.S. will will rise. That's one derivative of this crisis. But the other is the realization that Canada can compensate for the lack of... um, production, especially in agriculture and energy, and basically allow it to actually benefit the West. And that's exactly what will happen.
1: Benny, we've got about 30 seconds left before we have to go. Um, Whenever we speak to economists like yourself, we always take the position of what the central bank should do or a monetary policy. Rarely do we talk to you about what a fiscal policy should happen. So from the fiscal policy side, what should the the, bank, uh, the, the sorry the, the government of Canada do to help the economy continue to grow without the risk of inflation on their end?
3: Yes, so I think that uh, clearly the government cannot spend the way it uh, did during COVID. And there is a risk that if COVID comes back, if we have another wave, you will have to support some uh, small businesses and individuals. So there is a risk that you will need to spend a little bit more there. I think that when it comes to energy prices, one thing that you can look at, quite frankly, to help uh, low-income Canadians is with accession not a permanent cut in accession but a temporary cut in accession in order to allow people to function in this environment because it's a supply shock that is in addition to other inflationary forces if you have just an oil supply shock that's fine but it's in addition to food prices any other prices and that's why it's becoming a significant force and yes we know that a lot of people were accumulating um, a, a lot of money during um, COVID but those are well-to-do people not low income. And therefore, they need the help.
1: Yeah, there you go. They need help, and that's part of the growth strategy for this country as well. And so, you know, when you're looking at this type of stuff, Benny, it's very challenging. I want to thank you for your time uh, and coming back on this show and giving us your insights. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: A pleasure. Good luck. Thank you.
1: Thanks, we've, been, we've been joined by Benny Tal, Deputy Chief Economist of CIBC World Markets. Rob, uh, when we look at all these issues from inflation, taxes, potentially a a switch from products to services. there's a, That's an impact to people's retirement. There's a lot of volatility there. So how do you bulletproof your retirement? Let's talk about when we're going to show the uh, the, the people our, our solution to that problem.
0: Yeah, fair enough, Hazel. And it's not just right now. If are these situations, you know, a concern going into retirement, is it sustainable for the next 30 years too. So join us Tuesday, March 29th at 7pm live online. Go to More Than Money Radio to register.
1: Well, on behalf of Rob and myself, Faisal, I want to thank you for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR.